The Magi, or wise men, were scholars and priests from the East who studied everything from alchemy to ancient religious manuscripts to the stars. God revealed himself to these Magi through the ancient instruction of the prophet Daniel and the star of Bethlehem. They figured out through their studies that a king was born of the Jews. Isn't it fascinating that the first people in the world to recognize the arrival of the king were Gentiles? They knew that this was not just any king. They knew this child would be the source of massive cosmic shifts. They understood that the world was about to experience change on a scale never seen before. The Magi were blessed to meet the Savior. Interestingly, they brought gifts that reflected what would be the life and work of this child. Gold speaks of his kingship. Frankincense is incense for embalming, which speaks of his death for our sins. He is the Savior. And finally, myrrh is anointing oil, which tells us that he is God's anointed, the Messiah. Merry Christmas. That's the most depressed Merry Christmas. <laughs> Are you really depressed about it, really? Can we just try it maybe one more time? And, uh, and if you're not happy about it, can you just pretend? Here, let's try it one more time. Ready? I'm going to say it first, and then you answer back. Ready? Here we go. Ready? Merry Christmas. Oh, that's felt great. Thank you so much. Well, you know, nowadays, Merry Christmas is kind of almost a dirty word. People don't want to hear that. It's got to be happy holidays or, or season's greetings. But people, are, like, I'll tell you, we're living in a culture that is becoming more and more anti-Jesus, anti-Christmas, anti-church. Would, would you agree with that? It's happening. I mean, look at this. This is, this is hilarious. Here's three kids at the principal's office. One says, I said the S-H word. The other kid says, I said the F word. And the other kid stuns says, I said Christmas. <laughs> That's kind of where things are at these days. Well, I want you to know here across church, we're not shy about talking about Christmas, and we're certainly not shy about talking about Jesus, and we're not shy about talking about good old-fashioned gospel truth. So uh, I want to share with you this morning about the Virgin Mary. And this series that we're beginning today is called the Wenceslas, Wenceslas' Legacy. See, so it's Wenceslas' Legacy. So would you, would you try to say that with me so you don't just sit there laughing at me as I'm struggling with this? Wenceslas. See, it's not so easy, is it? So you can just hold your laughs to yourself. <laughs> Actually, say to the person beside you, Wenceslas's. Like, yeah, see, it's not that easy, is it? Yeah. Okay. Here's the, here's the thing. Wenceslas, I'm going to say this one more time. Wenceslas's legacy was blessing the poor. And if you were here on Friday night and you were uh, taking in our special children's Christmas concert. We've, there's something new, something we've never done before, or we haven't done it for many, 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 many years. In fact, I think the last time we did something like this was, uh, was something like this big, was actually at an old church on Elgin Avenue, and actually it was the same play. If you can believe it, I played King Wenceslas. Why are you laughing? You, you don't think I could do a good job, Bill? Actually, uh, young David Hartree did a far better job than me, but I want, us to, I want to focus on that. I want to use that as a touchstone, if you will, uh, for, this, for this holidays. Because 
Wenceslas was really all about giving and caring and sharing and helping the poor. Do you know that uh, Wenceslas was actually a duke in the 10th century, but he was a duke between the years 907 and 935 AD. He's called St. Wenceslas I, and he's actually the patron saint of the Czech Republic. Has anybody heard of, of Czechoslovakia? Well, we're talking about the first half of that, Czech. They split up in case you didn't know. That might be news to some of you. But they did split up, and, and Wenceslas is the patron saint of, of the Czech Republic. Now, there's a reason for that. This man was known for his generosity and his kindness. Uh, he, uh, as some of you may know, the Christmas Carol. Have you ever seen that Christmas Carol? Whoops. Let's see here. Good King Went. You know the words. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. You get. You get the. You get the drift. Thank you very much, by the way, for the duet there. Um, you get the drift. It's a story about this wonderful king who actually cares about the poor. And so there's Wenceslas gathering wood, and beside him is his page or servant boy. And what they're doing is they're going around giving alms to the poor. Uh, Wenceslas was known for his kindness and his generosity to slaves, to uh, prisoners, to widows, orphans. This man took seriously his commitment to Jesus Christ. He took seriously the call to be kind to those in need. And so this man who is actually very rich actually becomes poor in his care and his love for other people. And if you know the hymn, you know that, that he's gathering uh, firewood for orphans and for widows, and he's carrying it on his own shoulders, bringing it to the, to the homes of these poor people. And, and his page is gathering along, or his servant boy is gathering along, and they're on this journey of mercy and kindness to give up, give up firewood to poor people and give food, etc. And uh, the story goes that the boy is struggling to keep up because the winter... Weather is so harsh, and the snow is deep, and he's freezing, and the king turns around, and he says, look, just follow in my footsteps, and, and you'll be okay, and you'll be able to get a bit of shelter, and you'll be able to make it through the snow as we go and care for people. And uh, it's actually quite a delightful story, which we're gonna, I will tell you more about it over the next few weeks. But here's something interesting that I didn't know. Uh, Wenceslas was not actually a king. I didn't know if you knew that. He was, in fact, a duke. But the Holy Roman Emperor, Otto I, was so moved by his biography, so moved by his story, that he decided that Wenceslas should, in fact, be given the dignity and the title of king. Because if anybody exemplified kingship or the kingdom of God, it was this godly duke, this godly man. And so we know him now as King Wenceslas. Um, the last verse of that carol, it goes like this, and I'm not going to sing it for you, to your relief. Uh, it goes like this. It says, Therefore, Christian men, be sure, wealth or rank possessing, ye who now will bless the poor, shall yourselves find blessing. So the, the, the hymn goes like this. Those of you who are wealth, those who, of you who have got um, possessions and rank, that is, you know, you, you are somebody, he says, look, if you want to truly be blessed, if you truly want to be happy, because that's what blessing means. It means to be happy. If you truly want to be happy, then here's what you need to do. 
You need to bless the poor. You need to make the poor people happy. That's what, that's what that hymn is about. And I'm going to tell you this, folks. This is the essence of the Christian faith. This is the essence of who we are and what we believe as Christians. Our job is to bless the poor and understand that God will bless those who bless the poor. Now, again, uh, our whole Christian faith, our, the whole Christian teaching, the whole scripture is all about how we care for the poor and the needy. And if you look at the Christmas story, this may surprise you, if you look at the Christmas story, it's, it's full of poor people. The whole Christmas story is full of poor people, which I'm going to elaborate over the next four weeks. So you, you understand that there's a message there. It's not overt. It's a little bit covert, but there's a message there about poor people. And, and you and I need to recognize that God is saying something to us. It wasn't, it wasn't the wealthy. It wasn't the people of high rank and position and not the people with titles. It wasn't the princes and, and, and it wasn't the dukes. It was poor people that God called and chose to use for his purposes. And we're going to see what, what this means for us, practically speaking, in the days ahead. But let me begin by uh, talking today about the virgin, because that's how the Christmas story opens. And uh, we, we read about the Virgin Mary in the Gospels. The Gospels, in case you don't know, are the first four books of the Bible. And the Gospels actually speak of the, the birth of Jesus. It speaks about the the life of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, the signs and wonders. It talks about his crucifixion. It talks about his death. It talks about his resurrection from the dead. It talks about his, his commission to all of us to go into all the world and share this good news. And then it talks about his ascension. That's, that's what the Gospels are all about in a nutshell. But here's what you need to know about the word gospel, because some people say, well, you know, that's not a word you use every day. What does it mean? Well, the word gospel simply means good news. Or maybe in, in our language today, it would be the word news bulletin. So we've got these four news bulletins, and, and a news bulletin is meant to be read out loud. Everybody needs to hear that. These gospels, when they were, when they were written, were, were written so that they would be used in the church and be read out loud. And so this morning, I want to just quickly read to you out loud. That wouldn't be much good for me to read it to myself. I'm going to read it out loud so everybody can hear the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 1 and starting at verse 18. And here's what it says. It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Now, did you hear that? Joseph finds out the girl he's about to marry is actually pregnant, and He's not happy with that news. In fact, I don't know a man here that would be happy to find out the girl he's about to marry is pregnant. Because Joseph is saying, well, it wasn't by me. So how did this happen? Now, I want to tell you, the Bible includes all these details for a reason. 
for, first of all, to help us understand that what we're reading is truth, and secondly, to help us understand how these things come to be. Now, listen to this. In verse 20, it says, As Joseph considered this, Remember, he's going to put her away. He's just going to, I'm just going to quietly, I'm not going to say too much. I'm just going to quietly say, look, it's over, dear. Uh, we're not going to get married. Um, it's just not going to work out. You know, God bless you, but it's not on. But as he's considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. By the way, did you notice it was Joseph, son of David? The prophecies say that Jesus will be born in the line of David. Keep that in mind. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now listen to this. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now it's not Mary going around telling Joseph, but Joseph, you don't understand. I just woke up one morning, and there it was. No. This is the angel telling Joseph this. I mean, let's face it. Could Mary really convince Joseph of this? No, God understood that Joseph need, needed to hear through a divine source that this child was coming from him to this earth. And she will have a son, the angel says, and Joseph, you are to name the son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word, the name Jesus actually means savior, and that's why Jesus is called that. So just, just quickly, just stop for a moment. When we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, remember we're celebrating the birth of our savior because we need a savior. If God thought we needed more instruction, he would have sent us a teacher. If God thought that we needed to be disciplined, he would have sent us a principal. If God thought that we needed music lessons, he would have sent us a music teacher, Carolyn. You see what I'm saying? But God knew that what we really needed is we needed salvation. And so he sends Jesus, our Savior. And then we read on in verse 22. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look. The virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Now, some skeptics and some mockers will oppose the idea of a virgin birth. They, here's, here's their argument. They'll say, oh, well, she got into trouble and she didn't want to tell her parents and so she concocted this crazy, crazy idea that she is carrying the Messiah. That's what the mockers and the skeptics will say. The problem with that argument, folks, is that when we begin to look at the evidence, it all falls apart. It doesn't really make sense. And I'll tell you why. First of all, because Joseph was the first one to say, I believe. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't know of any men that would, that would, would go along with this unless they had a divine message from God, unless God spoke, and that's exactly what happened. Joseph believed, not Mary, believed God. Very important to hear that. 
That's the beginning of the message. So we know that uh, we know that Jesus was born of a virgin because first and foremost, Joseph, who ended up naming Jesus, was the one who recognized it first and believed first. But you could say, well, Pastor Allen, maybe somebody just talked him into believing that. Well, there is this other problem if you're a skeptic, and it's this verse in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is a prophecy given 700 years before Jesus was born. And it says, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now look at this, folks. The Old Testament declares that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will be born of a virgin. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then that would mean that he does not qualify to be Messiah because that would mean he did not fulfill one of the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And so we recognize that. So first of all, then, we've got, we've got Joseph who says, I believe. I got no question in my mind. I was visited by an angel. I got no questions. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Mary is carrying a child called Jesus the Savior. The second thing is we've got this, this, this pesky prophecy from 700 years before Jesus was born that attests to the fact that Jesus is born of a virgin. But folks, there's more things that we have to consider. We have to consider the actual life of Jesus and his teaching. We've got to consider that John the Baptist recognizes him and calls him the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Speaks of what? Salvation. He's a, he recognizes that he's a savior. And then we look at the miracles of Jesus. And we see the signs and the wonders and that Jesus raised people from the dead. And Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes and he walked on water. And we begin to recognize, wow, there's something about this guy that is not natural. And so we see Joseph. He says, yes. Isaiah he says, yes, this is the one. And then all the people who follow Jesus, they recognize and say, yes, this is the Messiah. This is the one chosen by God to be the savior of the world. And then we look, of course, at Jesus' death and then his resurrection. And we see all of this evidence and we have to say, we cannot dismiss the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, some of you sitting here today are asking the question, but does it really matter? Did Jesus really have to be born of a virgin? And my answer to that is an emphatic yes with as many exclamation marks after that as you can put. It's absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt. For Jesus to be God, he had to be born of God. Two human beings, Joseph and Mary, could not produce God. You need to understand that. And I'm going to tell you, ancient Christian theology, the theology that's been handed down from the beginning of time, from the, from the, right after the birth of Christ to this day, says that this is a dogma. In other words, we, we, cannot, we cannot say, well, this is debatable. This is, everything, everything is tied to this. What we're saying is this is one of the, the cardinal truths of Scripture. You have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. God cannot be born into this world by natural human processes. There's no way that he could be 
God and also human. Now, that might come as a shock to some of you today because some of you are sitting here today and saying, well, hold on, did you, did you say what I thought you said, Pastor? Did you actually call Jesus God? A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people have been going to church for years. They don't realize that Jesus is God. And I've got time to get into my Christology notes here, but I have to tell you, if you don't know this, it's something you need to research. But the Bible declares that Jesus is 100% God. I'm hearing crickets. But here's the other thing that might shock you, is Jesus is also 100% human. Some people thought Jesus was half, you know, half and half, half like, a, like a hybrid, half God, half, half man. No, he's 100% God, and he's 100% human. And by the way, there are people over the centuries uh, who have tried to, uh, have held to this heresy that, that Jesus is not fully God. And in fact, we know of religious groups today that do not believe that Jesus is God. For instance, we know that Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. And in fact, they've made some little uh, adjustments in the, in the Greek script and giving Jesus uh, 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 an indefinite article. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't panic. You can look it up yourself later. But here's what you need to know is that there are groups that do not believe that Jesus is God. This is why we do not embrace Jehovah's Witnesses as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, we, we have certain dogmas. We have certain truths that we... We cannot negotiate. We cannot, we, cannot, uh, uh, we cannot embrace these things that, that are, are not true. I think Mormons as well do not believe that Jesus is God. In fact, uh, Muslims do not believe Jesus is God. Uh, we find that the Jews do not believe that Jesus is God. In fact, when I was visiting an elderly lady uh, years ago at at her care home, there was a, a really sweet Jewish fellow that who found out I was a minister. And so he just loved to come and torment me. And he wanted to talk to me about, about faith, about Christianity, so on and so forth. And so we got down to the brass tacks real quick. And he said, look, I just want you to know that Jesus never said that he was God. I said, really? Have you read the New Testament? Oh, well, um, hmm. well, you need to actually go back and take a look because actually Jesus does say he's God, and you need to recognize. In fact, Jesus receives worship as God. For Jesus to be God, you need to know that he had to be born of the Virgin Mary. He's born of flesh, but he's also born of spirit, the spirit of God. So here we are at this time of the year, celebrating the birth of Christ. And for many of us, when we talk about the birth of Christ, we're talking simply about baby Jesus. But here's what you need to know, that this celebration of Christmas, it's not just about baby Jesus. We're talking about every aspect of Jesus' life. We're talking about, yes, his humble birth, or what we call the incarnation. We're talking about uh, his, his transformative ministry. Lives were transformed. We're talking about the miracles. We're talking about, ultimately, his sacrificial death. But I'm going to tell you that none of the things that Jesus taught, listen to this, and none of the things that Jesus did would ultimately matter if, in fact, we question Jesus' parentage. You need to understand that. Everything falls apart if Jesus was not born of a virgin. When it comes to the truth of the virgin birth, I'm telling you, compromise is not an option. Now, 
This past week, I've had a number of people who have uh, brought me some interesting articles that have come out in the newspaper. And uh, here's one that came from the Free Press, November the 26th. And here's what it says. It says, uh, actually, let me just give you some background. So they've done some research about churches that are growing and churches that are dying. And they looked at nine growing churches, and they looked at 13 declining churches. And the article, I'm not being, like, I'm not being prejudiced here, but the 13 churches that they looked at were Anglican, United, Lutheran, and Presbyterian. And these churches were all in Ontario. Maybe Manitoba's got a better picture, I don't know. Um, but what we discover is that actually across the country, they're closing one United Church every week. Every week. There's a United Church that's closing its doors, it's finished, it's over. I'm not judging or condemning, but what I want to do is I want to look at their findings. I want you to see something really critical, and you'll see what it, how it's tied to what I'm saying to you this morning. It says, uh, at growing churches, 93% of pastors and 83% of congregants, that's you, they agreed with the statement, quote, Jesus rose from the dead with a real flesh and blood body, leaving behind an empty tomb. 93% of the pastors agreed with that. 83% of the congregants believed that. At declining churches, however, only 56% of the clergy and only 67% of the congregants believed that Jesus rose from the dead in a real flesh and blood body, leaving behind an empty tomb. When asked if God performs miracles in answer to prayer, 100% of the clergy and 90% of congregants at growing churches agreed, compared to only 44% of clergy and 80% of congregants at declining churches. You see the difference? 100% of the pastors versus 44% of the pastors believe that God performs miracles and answers to prayer. And when it comes to evangelism, remember, Jesus is the Savior. He's come to save us. And this is why we evangelize. Evangelize means to share the good news. Evangelion. We're going and we're sharing the good news. When it comes to evangelism, 100% of pastors and 78% of congregants at growing churches agreed it is very important to encourage non-Christians to become Christians. But just 50% of pastors and 56% of congregants of declining churches felt that way. And it goes on. Folks, I want you to know something here across church. We're going to teach you what the Word of God says. We are not going to apologize for it, and we're not going to compromise it. You're going to hear exactly what the Bible says, and as long as I'm the pastor at this church and I'm the one preaching, you are going to hear the ancient faith declared to you. We believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, and although it may be hard to believe, based on the evidence, I'm going to tell you that it's a very reasonable faith. It's a very reasonable thing to believe. If you believe that God is is who he is and that God can do miracles, then we recognize that this is certainly something God can do. Now you say, Pastor Ellen, what has this got to do with Wenceslas? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because there's things that we need to learn from the Virgin Mary. There's things that, that are, are very important for us to look at. And here's the first thing you need to understand. Uh, Mary was not only the mother of Jesus. She was a true believer in him. She was indeed 
a disciple of Jesus. And she knew what, her name, what, what Jesus' name meant. She knew that Jesus was a savior. Now listen to this. She is following her son as a disciple. She recognizes that she needs a savior. Let me say that again. Mary, the mother of Jesus, understands that she needs a savior. More than anyone else, she understood that Jesus was God. Now, we've got a number of mothers here today. Most of, most of our mothers here know their kids quite well. Mary knew her kids, her kids quite well, and she's a typical Jewish mother. And this may go against, if you've come from a Roman Catholic background or an Orthodox background or even a high Anglican background, uh, this may sound strange to your ear, but actually the Bible does say that Jesus has brothers. And we don't find Mary exalting or seeing any of her other children as being anything other than their children. But with her one son, Jesus, she recognizes that he is not like the others. And so she becomes a faithful and loyal follower of her son. Now, the reason I mentioned the high Anglican churches and the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic churches is, again, not to judge or condemn them or to put them down or I'm not picking on anybody, but you need to understand something. Through the centuries, Mary has been greatly exaggerated in her holiness and actually even in her virginity. They claim that Mary was a virgin till the day she died. And that would be really interesting because how did Jesus get brothers if it wasn't from Mary? And in fact, it says here that, uh, that, Mary, that Joseph didn't have any sexual relations with her until the son was born. So it, it, it clearly indicates that you know, Mary is maybe not as godlike as you would like her to be. In fact, we recognize that she is a human being as much in need of God's grace and forgiveness as anybody else. But they will go on to tell you that she was born without sin. They call it an immaculate birth. And that's interesting because if, if so she's the mother of Jesus, so Jesus was born without sin, and their reasoning is if Jesus is born without sin, therefore his mother must be born without sin. But, but then you have to ask the question, if she's born without sin, does that mean that her mother was without sin? And if her mother was without sin, does that mean the, mother, the grandmother and the great-grandmother? And of course, we know that, that that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly teaches that the only one born without sin is Jesus. But they would go on to say that she not only was a virgin for the rest of her life, that she not only was without sin for the rest of her life, but they would also say that she did not die like the rest of us, that she ascended into heaven. In 2009, we were actually in Ephesus in Turkey, and I didn't even know the place existed. No, not Ephesus. I didn't know that, that the house of Mary existed in Ephesus. I don't know. Has anybody ever heard of that? There's supposed to be the, the house of Mary because they, they believe that Mary... After Jesus ascended into heaven, she went with John, and John took care of her in the city of Ephesus. And so they, they've got a house there, and they say that when, uh, just before she died, she ascended unto the Father. Okay, so there's no scriptural uh, support of such a thing, and um, I don't even know if there's really any kind of uh, true historical support of such a notion. But let me just say this to you. Uh, when it comes to the truth that we preach, 
We're not trying to, we're not just making up fairy stories. We're trying to look to the truth and we're trying to see, is this reasonable to believe? But the next thing you need to understand, and, and here's what Mary would say to you if she were here right now. She'd say, don't pray to me. Don't listen to me, listen to my son. In fact, Jesus actually uh, is doing miracles and giving instructions, and we find Mary telling people, listen, whatever you do, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. Do whatever he says. She's a true Jewish mom. This is my son, the Messiah. Do what he says. You need to get that. Because here's what we recognize about Mary. Mary was a woman who said, God, I want to submit myself to you for your purposes. God, here am I, use me. And we find that Mary is chosen by God to fulfill the greatest calling given to any human being. She would carry, she should conceive and give birth to the Savior of the world. And I love that reaction of Mary's to this news. I mean, Mary could have said, hold on a minute, God. I don't know if I want to take this on. You want me to be the mother of the Messiah, the Savior of the whole wide world? I mean, God, I'm not educated. I am not from a wealthy family. Uh, how will I support him? Uh, God, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a scholar. I don't know the scriptures that well. I don't know the prophecies. I'm not an expert in the law or the word. God, are you sure that it's me you want to use? It's interesting how God operates. God decides to use whomever he wants to use. In fact, last time I checked, God will use anybody who says, here my God, use me. And this is what we find about Mary. She was chosen by God because she was a pure and godly young woman with a desire to be used by God. In fact, We've been talking over the last five weeks in our Eat in the Kingdom of God series about doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Now watch this. God's will in heaven was that there be a Savior on this earth. And so God in heaven says there needs to be a Savior, and Mary on earth says, God, hear my, use me. And here is a perfect example of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Let the Spirit of God speak to you now because this is the essence of Christianity. It's saying, God, I want to partner with you. God, I want to be your vessel. I want to be used by you so that whatever it is that you want in heaven will be done here on earth through me. This is profound. Let the Spirit of God just fill your heart and your mind with this truth. God wants to use you. Imagine for a moment if every person here today in this room would say along with, with the Virgin Mary, God, here am I, use me. God, whatever it is that you want done, whatever it is that you have come up with there in heaven, use me to make it happen here on earth. This is what Christianity is. It's all about you partnering with Almighty God so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God says, Mary, I'm gonna take you up on, on your offer. I'm actually going to use you, Mary. I know you're young. I know that when you're pregnant, that's gonna be very awkward in your village. I know you're gonna have a hard time explaining it to your parents and your friends and your relatives. You're gonna have a hard time explaining it to Joseph, but don't worry about that, I got that covered. 
I know it's going to be difficult. And Mary, here's her response. It's, it's what we call the Magnificat. It's fantastic. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. When's the last time you said that to God when God says, okay, I'm going to use you? This is her response. How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. Did you notice that Mary doesn't say, I'm the holy one? She says, God's the holy one. By the way, one of the things that we discovered when we were in Greece is, is that Mary, I mean, my, by the way, Greece is an Orthodox country, Orthodox church. If you're, if you're a Greek, then you're Orthodox. If you're Orthodox, you're a Greek. And, uh, and there they call her Panagia, which means the all-holy one. How many know that there's only one all-holy one? And that's what Mary says, for the mighty one is holy. And he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. That's Mary, a girl, a young girl that fears God and says, Lord, here am I, use me. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made his promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Wow. That is, to me, one of the most thrilling uh, worship songs in Scripture. A girl who is absolutely thrilled to be used by God. Thrilled to say, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven through me. Is that your prayer this Christmas? You, have you prayed that? Have you ever prayed that? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. You're saying, God, let your will be done on earth through me. What a force that this world would have to reckon with of everybody just here for instance, said, yeah, I'm going to pray that prayer. God, let your will be done on earth through me. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you are not doing God's will on earth, then you've got to ask yourself the question, do I really have the real deal here? Am I really a follower of Christ? Because the Bible says that anybody who's a follower of Christ does the Father's will. I want you to notice something about Mary. She's a poor girl. She has nothing not educated, doesn't come from a good family in the sense that we would call a good family. But I'll tell you one thing she did have. She had a heart for God. And she said, God, I want to be used by you. She didn't have money to give God. She had herself. I'm going to tell you, at this Christmas season, that's exactly what God wants. He wants you. He wants all of you. When I say all of you, I don't mean all of you. I mean all of you and all of you and all of you and all of you. And the question is, are you willing to respond as Mary did?
Money is not the issue. You just got to show up and say, God, I'm, I'm available for your purposes. I'm available to do whatever it is that you want me to do. Mary's life has many lessons for us, but perhaps the greatest lesson is this. If we have God, if you have God, you've got everything. And some of you may have come to church here this morning feeling, you know, uptight about your resources, your finances, uptight, anxious because you feel like you haven't got enough and wish that you could make more and unhappy with your job, unhappy with your family, unhappy with your wife, your husband, you're unhappy with your boss. You're just unhappy with life in general. Can I tell you something? It's time for you to get your eyes off of the things of this world and get your eyes onto God. And I'm going to tell you it'll change your, pers your perspective dramatically. You'll suddenly recognize how very good God is to you. And I can prove that. You know, we, uh, we are a church that is in a poorer community in Winnipeg. And for whatever reason, God has given us an assignment to care for the poor. And when, I'm sorry to keep bringing this up, and I don't want to embarrass my brother Dennis Wee, but when he first came here and started talking about Burundi, God spoke to my heart and said, Alan, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want Cross Church to do. I want you to go and bless this country. And here's why. Because Burundi is the poorest it's considered the poorest nation on earth. In fact, there's another nation that is poor, and I think that the, that other nation, I can't remember what it is right offhand, they compete for, for first place in, in that ranking of both the poorest country in the world. But suffice it to say, it's a poor country and desperately needs our help. And we were thrilled and delighted to go there. Dennis, I know, is thrilled. It's his passion to go to Burundi and care for his orphans the Village of Hope, and we've gotten on board with that. In fact, uh, Chris and Dennis and Christy and Nick are going to be going to uh, Burundi, I think, in, at the end of January. Why do we do this? Well, because we have been given much, and the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. That's why we do this thing. And you go over to that country, and you discover when you get there that the very poorest of the poor in this country is rich compared to so many people in Burundi. It's something that's really hard for us to get our minds around. You've got to go over there, and you've got to see for yourself how very blessed we are. But one of the things that really surprised me, folks, when I got there, I was, I was looking for poverty. I saw it. But what I wasn't prepared for was the wealth. You say, what? That sounds like such a contradiction. Let me give you a hint before I go further. James says, let the rich say I am poor, and let the poor say I am rich. When we got there and we met these people who are so poor, these pastors, these leaders, we discovered that so many of them, in the midst of their poverty, had great wealth. They had a great relationship with God. Isn't that right, Dennis? Amazing relationship with God. These are people who, when they prayed, they experienced miracles. These are people who, when they prayed, they experienced God's answering their prayers. And we went over there, and this last trip over there, we visited 11 of the 40 churches there. And I can tell you, I think only three of them, only three of them had 
electricity. The rest, tin roof, stone brick walls, and these are the happiest, most joyful believers I've ever known. I ask you how you're doing. It's praise the Lord, great. God is good. God is helping me. Hallelujah. It's like, wow. I've come to Burundi to minister, and I go away being ministered to. If you are rich today, and I would hazard to guess that probably 99% of us here today are rich, then you need to understand that God has given you a special assignment. To whom much is given, much is required. If God has blessed you with the wealth that you have, then I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to encourage you in, in strong words. You have a responsibility to care for the poor. This is why we do these hampers. Uh, I'm just so thrilled that, that my brother Andrew and his siblings, Jimmy and Adeline, and the rest of the family have kept on the, the tradition or and they're raising funds to, to buy these hampers for people up in Garden Hill. Wonderful, godly people, but it's, it, it's difficult there. There is a, a level of poverty there. And I'm just so thrilled that our church would say, yes, we want to be part of that. In fact, I'd like to call this a Max Thunder Memorial uh, giving at every Christmas because it was Andrew's dad that had the calling on his life. Not a wealthy man by any stretch, but knew that he had a calling to go and make a difference up north. And that's what he did. And now we're carrying on that tradition. And we're almost there. We've almost got our goal of 30 hampers. I'm thrilled that Dennis and Nick and Christy and Chris are heading off to Burundi again. The last time that they were there, they experienced something very special. They had a camp for these kids. And uh, it's a simple camp that shared the gospel message. And part of the gospel message was the fact that someday, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, then you're going to go to heaven. And some of you know that last week I preached, spoke about heaven, about the new Eden. And Chris came to me after the service with tears in his eyes, kind of choked up, and I thought, oh, no, have I said something to offend him? What's going on here? He's like, I just got to tell you something. Um, when uh, we were in Africa talking to the kids about, about heaven, the message of heaven for them was far more poignant than it is maybe for people here in North America. For many of us, we feel like we're living in heaven right now. I mean... We have a fridge and a stove, a TV, Wi-Fi. We've got uh, air conditioning. We've got dishwasher. I mean, this is heaven, right? Washer and dryer. And not everybody still says they're too busy to do anything. These kids have got nothing. Many of them, their parents have died. They are alone. They've got nobody on this planet and live in poverty. And Chris was telling me that when it came time to talk about heaven, here's these kids worshiping God. One of the beads on that little bracelet represents heaven. For these kids, 
The idea that they're going to heaven someday, if they put their faith in Jesus, it's a game changer for them. For them, this earth is full of disease, AIDS, poverty, suffering. This world is a place of sickness, sadness. Oh, and did I mention poverty? And yet there's a certain richness, a certain wealth that these kids have. And so here's what we see in the Christian faith. We see the great balancing. Those who are rich give to the poor, and those who are poor challenge the rich. This Christmas season, let the Spirit of God deal with you. And my prayer is that we would have, sitting here today, a room full of, I'm going to say it one more time, Wenceslases. People who are prepared and willing to care for the poor and the needy. Because the very essence of Christianity means that you forget about yourself and start caring for others. Forget about yourself and care for others. Would you say amen with me on that? Maybe one more time. That's better. You may stand. Father, we want to be faithful in our service to you. God, we get so panicky about our own needs. We've got to buy birthday or Christmas presents, and we've got to make sure that we have enough food for Christmas, and we've got to get people gifts at the office and gifts at home and gifts for aunties, uncles, grandpas, and grandmas. God, we forget that that really isn't what Christmas is about. It's about helping those in need and taking time, oh God, to allow our own spirits to be enriched by the truth of Jesus Christ, what really matters. Help us, oh God, today to be like Mary, who declares how great is her God and recognizes how wealthy she is. May every one of us go from here knowing how very wealthy we are because of where we live, first of all, and secondly, because we have Jesus. And now help us, we pray, as we go from here, to go and share this wealth with others, to share our faith, to share our Jesus with people who are living in darkness, to share our wealth with those who are living in poverty. God, we thank you for what we have, and we pray, oh God, that we would be faithful to use it for your glory. And everybody said it with me. Tell the person beside you, go and share your wealth.